This week on Southcrest Live, featuring Dr. David Wilson, we continue our study called Hope, a series in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 3 today, verses 18 through 22, one of the most difficult to interpret passages in the Bible. Before his resurrection, did Christ preach to souls in purgatory? Does this passage teach salvation comes through baptism? These are just a couple of the puzzling questions dealt with in this week's message, The Ministry of the Suffering Savior, from Pastor David Wilson. We could just go home now, couldn't we? You want to? <laughs> After you hear this sermon, you're probably going to wish I hate you had. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. I'll tell you, when you go verse by verse through the scripture, you don't get a chance to skip. Because I can promise you, if you weren't going verse by verse through 1 Peter, you would skip this. It's the hardest passage in the New Testament to interpret. A lot of, a lot of scholars, they got, they've come up with a lot of different interpretations. And a lot of doctrines have come out of this that I think are wrong. Uh, the doctrine of purgatory, for example, has come out of this. Some people believe that this passage teaches baptismal regeneration. You have to be baptized to be saved. That's what actually saves you, that you're baptized into Christ. All that comes out of this passage. Now, if you don't keep it in context, you're going to miss what's really said here. Because Peter's been talking to believers, Christians who are suffering some of them have lost their homes. They've been scattered abroad. Some of them are being persecuted physically. They are suffering. In fact, he even said in the passage prior to this that sometimes you suffer for doing good. The only reason you're suffering is because of your faith in Christ. You, you haven't done anything wrong. And then he begins in verse 18 to pick up on that passage. You'll notice in verse 18, would you stand while I read these four or five verses and then you'll notice he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few that is, eight souls were saved through water. There's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you, to give us divine interpretation, open our hearts and minds to see the truth, and to apply this to our own lives. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word. We thank you that, that you help us understand it. So we're asking you now to help us understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Little Zachary was a Jewish boy, was having a hard time with math. His parents tried everything. They had tutors, mentors, 
flashcards, learning centers. They tried everything. And finally, in a last-ditch effort to help him learn math, this Jewish family enrolled their Jewish son in a Catholic school that was known for math. The first day Zachary came home, he went straight to his room. He didn't even kiss his mom hello. He went straight to his room and studied until dinner time. When she called him down for dinner, he came down and ate. He didn't stick around and went straight back to his room. There were books open and papers everywhere. He was studying hard. This went on day after day after day. She couldn't believe it. She couldn't figure out what in the world had happened. And finally, little Zachary brought home his report card. He quietly laid it on the table, went up to his room, hit the books. And with great trepidation, his mom looked at it. And to her great surprise, he had an A in math. She could no longer hold her curiosity. So she went to his room and son, she said, son, what is it? What, what, what's changed you? Was it the nuns? And little Zachary looked at her and shook his head, no. Well, then, was it the books, the discipline, the structure, the uniforms? What was it? Little Zachary looked at her and said, well, on the first day of school, when I saw that guy nailed to a plus sign, I knew they weren't messing around. <laughs> We're going to talk about that guy on the plus sign today. We're talking about Jesus dying on the cross now, I've already told you that Peter's writing to, about the unjust suffering of believers, and then he uses Jesus as the example. He said even Jesus was suffering for no reason. I mean, he hadn't done anything wrong, and yet he's still suffering. And by showing the suffering of Jesus and the victory that he had... Peter is believing that Christians would be encouraged. Even Jesus suffered, but look, now he rose again, and now he's seated at the right hand of God. And he uses uh, Noah as an example, how he suffered ridicule, and then he was saved through the flood. He was using those as examples, and if you get lost in all these little details, you'll miss what he's really trying to say to the persecuted Christians, and that is to be encouraged because even though you may be in the agony of defeat right now, that you know the thrill of victory is going to come through Jesus Christ. But there are a lot of little details in here that we're going to take a look at. And we're going to begin by looking at what I call the propitiation of Christ's death. In verse 18, that first two, the first two statements there are just full of truth. You'll notice that he affirms some very important facts about the death of Christ. First, notice the unpleasant fact. Christ suffered. Some of the translations say he died. But the, but the indication here is he died a horrible death. And we take it for granted because we've never seen anyone die on the cross. But before Jesus died on the cross, he was beaten beyond recognition. That's why it didn't take very long for him to die on the cross. Many times it took days for people to die on a cross. And that's why they came and broke the legs of the thieves on each side of him so that they would go ahead and die. But when they got to Jesus, he had already died. Well, part of it is he'd taken a beating, a beating that could have killed him on the process. 
We get a picture of that back in 2004 when Mel Gibson came out with The Passion of the Christ. And many of you saw that. And if you went to it, if you were like, if it was like when I saw it, at the end of that movie, tears were in everyone's eyes and nobody said a word when they left. No one spoke a word because of the brutality that we saw Jesus portrayed in that movie. And he had to cut it back. The first, the first cut of that movie was even more graphic and they made him take 15 or 20 minutes out of it in order to just get an R rating. And it was rated R just because of the brutality that showed Jesus beating and carrying the cross and dying on the cross. We forget that he suffered for you and me. But then you'll notice the unique nature of Jesus' death. He, he died once for sins. There was a purpose it, with reference to sin. Notice carefully how Peter puts it. He did not die for his own sins because he never sinned. Back in chapter 22, it says, in chapter 2, verse 22, it says, he committed no sin nor deceit was found in his mouth. He, he died for one reason. The per, only perfect man that ever lived died for your sin and my sin. Amen. That's the only reason he died. He was not cut off short like some think he was going to be a revolutionary and they killed him before he got his revolution underway. Listen, Jesus knew why he came and he died for one reason. He died for sin, suffered with reference to sin. It's unrepeatable once. Once and for all, it translates the word hapax, H-A-P-A-X, which means perpetual validity. It does not require repeating. No one else needs to die. Jesus doesn't even need to die. And this would have been foreign to the Jewish mind because every year they killed a lamb or a, a goat to cover their sin, had to do it repeatedly. For centuries they did this until Jesus died once. And it doesn't need to be repeated anymore. And incidentally, folks, if you think there's a sin that you can commit that will cause you to lose your salvation, that means Jesus didn't cover it. He covered them all. And once you've been saved, you're saved to the uttermost. Nothing takes you out of the hand of God. By his grace, you are saved, and by his grace, you are held on to. You don't keep yourself saved. You didn't save yourself, and you don't keep yourself saved. God does all of that. It's an unrepeatable death. Once and for all, and it showed that death no longer had a grip on Jesus and that his death paid it all. It was a substitutional death. Verse 18 says that the just for the unjust, he died in your place. Don't ever forget that. He, he suffered. He had done no wrong. He was sinless, yet he suffered. He died a horrible death, the just for the unjust. And Peter is reminding these Christians, what you're going through may be tough, but Jesus did that for us also. Now, you'll notice the unprecedented, unprecedented result in verse 18. It says that he might bring us to God. That word in the ancient times was used for a man that would check out somebody who was coming to see the king and if he'd find out the reason and then he would introduce him to the monarch. This is in the subjunctive mood, which means it has possible action to it, which means not everybody's going to be introduced to God because some people refuse to be introduced to God. But it says that Jesus died a horrible death, the just for the unjust, that he might introduce us, bring us, escort us to God the Father. So that's why we come through Jesus Christ to God. 
There's no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's how you get to God. It's the only way through him. And he died for us. Christ removed the barriers. The, the veil that was in front of the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom, indicating that now you have access to God through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. We pray through Jesus Christ to get to God. We don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to come through me to get to God. We can pray through Jesus Christ. And when we receive him and he, we are believers and followers and born again believers of Christ, we now have access to God. You can talk to God. Why? Because your sin has been covered. The covering that separates us from God has now covered, we've been covered by the blood of Christ, which now allows us to come into his presence as holy and righteous and forgiven. You've got to come to Christ. He's the only one that will change your life. You can go to church, you can go to all kinds of self-help things, but you will not be changed until you come to know Christ. Now, when we get to verse 18, you'll notice the last phrase. Now, I'm reading out of a New King James Version of the Bible, and some of you have a King James. Some of your translations may already have it this way, but in the New King James and the King James, the word spirit is capitalized, insinuating that it's the Holy Spirit. And so it says, he was being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. I think that's an unfortunate translation. And here's why. First of all, it's not a comparison between Jesus' death and the Holy Spirit. In the Greek text, there are no capital letters. There are definite articles. For example, the word anthropos, which means man in Greek, it, is, it insinuates a man went to town. If you have ho anthropos, the definite article, ho anthropos, the man went to town. It's a particular man. And so when you have the definite article there, you're speaking of someone specifically. Well, there's no definite article here. So you don't have a capital and there's no definite article. I don't believe it's referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I say that, I think the emphasis here is the, the contrast between Jesus dying in the flesh and his spirit still remaining alive. Now, stay with me. We're, we're about to get deep here and it's going to get worse. So stay with me. There are a lot of people that don't believe that Jesus died physically. That he just died, he swooned on the cross, and then when they put him in the tomb, that he woke up and he came back to consciousness and walked out of the tomb. A lot of people don't believe he died in the flesh. Peter was saying he died in the flesh. He died physically. One of these days you're going to die physically. But your spirit does not die. Your spirit goes to God. Your, your spirit, which saves your soul, is, goes to God. We're spirit, soul, and body. But, but what I want you to see is that, that Jesus died physically, and he said his spirit was still alive, and his spirit went to preach to the spirits in prison. Now, we'll get to that in just a second, but here's the deal. I think Jesus did die a little bit in his spirit. I don't know, maybe not a little bit, but for a, a short time. When he was still on the cross... 
He was still conscious and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was separated from God the Father right then. And that is parallel to a person today without the Lord. They are dead spiritually speaking. They are separated from God and Jesus experienced that. And then later that day on the cross, he, when he died, he said, into your hands I commend my spirit. So there's, there's no definite article and the end of verse 18 should read, being put to death with reference to the flesh, but made alive with reference to the spirit. The contrast is between the flesh and spirit and not between Christ's flesh and the Holy Spirit. So on the cross, our Lord suffered and died. His body was put to death. His spirit never died. Now, some interpreters think made alive by the spirit described Jesus' resurrection. But if, if Peter had intended to make such a reference, he would have used this expression. He would have said he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the flesh. But the resurrection was not merely a spiritual reality, it was a physical one. And his point here is that though Jesus' body was dead, he remained alive in his spirit, and then he went to preach to the spirits in prison. He was a man like you and me, so when he physically died, his spirit went to God, but now it also says he went to speak, verse 19, by whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, this is what I call the proclamation of Christ's victory. A lot of us don't think of Jesus as a preacher. We think of him as a savior and a teacher and the Messiah and the healer and so forth. But Matthew's gospel in verse chapter 4, verse 23, and Luke chapter 20, verse 1, talks about Jesus preaching the good news. And here it says that he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Who are these spirits? The word spirits, like it's used right here, is never used of a human unless there's a qualifier. Every now and then you'll see a passage that would say something like the spirits of the righteous. You would know that was talking about men. This word here is not talking about people. So who's it talking about? Well, we get a little glimpse in verse 20. It says, who formerly were disobedient when the long suffering of God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Well, that helps a little, but not a lot. So we have to go back to Genesis and see what in the world is going on here. So when you go back to Genesis chapter six, listen to verses one and two. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, there's a lot of different interpretations about this. I happen to agree with the oldest interpretation of this passage. And when I say that, we go back to the Jewish scholars who translated the Old Testament into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. They, two centuries before Christ was here, they interpreted it this way. And that, and that means that the sons of God, the spirits, 
that are here in verse 19, the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. That phrase, sons of God, is never used for man. It always refers to angels. Now, angels, a third of the angels fell with Satan from heaven. And what do we call them today? Demons. Demons. Now, I'm not one of those people that's looking for a demon behind every bush, but I believe in demons because Jesus cast out demons in the New Testament. Demons can inhabit people, can't they? So in chapter 6 of Genesis, we find this, the, the sons of God, the angels who rebelled against God, we call them demons, inhabited human bodies, married with human women, and produced offspring that was rebellious and against God. Some call them the Nephilim, uh, excuse me, the Nephilim. Nephilim, I'll get it right here in a minute. This is the third time I've had to do this. Uh, verse four, who roamed the earth as ancient tyrants and bullies. And at the time of the flood, before the flood, the, the human race had become so defiant in your face toward God that God decided he was going to cleanse it. Now this fits in with Genesis three, where God told the serpent the seed of the woman will crush you. You will bruise his head. You will bruise his heel. Excuse me. He will crush you. So Satan knows that the Messiah is going to come through mankind. And so how would you keep the Messiah from coming? You pollute mankind. And so all the earth, so you're thinking, how in the world, if God created the world in verse Genesis 1 and 2, and then in chapter 6, it's so vile and evil that he's going to wipe it out. What happened? Well, I believe that they inhabited the people and their offspring came. And this is how Jewish scholars uh, interpreted it. Now, this helps us understand two verses in the New Testament that seem kind of strange. Let me read them to you. 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, wait a minute. You think, okay, well, that makes sense with here. And then in Jude, Jude only has one chapter, so Jude 6 is verse 6 and 7. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but left their abode... He has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Both passages describe a very drastic judgment upon certain angels. 
They left their proper abode. In the second Peter passage, the angels are mentioned first and then comes Noah and the flood. In the Jude passage, it says in a similar manner, joins the angels with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was extreme sexual immorality that consisted after going after strange flesh. That means more than just homosexuality because in Genesis 19, two angels in human form visited there and they, the men of that town were going to try to abuse them sexually. So let me put this in simple terms. You put it all together, it looks like this. In the days before the flood, certain angels rebelled against God and entered human bodies in a form of demon possession, taking for themselves human wives. The resulting cohabitation produced a form of evil offspring that roamed the earth as giants, tyrants, and workers of enormous evil. For this hideous sin, the angels were sent to the pit of deep darkness and the world of Noah's day was wiped out in the great flood. It helps us also remember in the gospels, we learn that demons crave bodies to exist in. Remember the man in the Gadarene, the the man of Gadara that had legion in him and Jesus was going to cast them out and they said, let us go into the pigs. Don't throw us into the abyss. So he cast them into the pigs. First deviled ham. You needed a break, so I'm giving it to you. <laughs> so where does all of that lead us now in verse 19 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter? I believe that Jesus preached to those demonic spirits that are being held for judgment. So what did he preach? There's more than one word for preach in the New Testament. One of them is the word evangelism. Euangelizomize, the word is for evangelism, to preach the gospel, to preach the good news. There's another word, kerygma. That's the word used here. And all kerygma states, it was an announcement, a proclamation. A herald sometimes would come from the king into the community and make a pronouncement of something that was going to happen. It, it was not preaching the gospel. So Jesus did not go to these demonic spirits and preach the gospel. He did not go to human beings and preach the gospel. There is no purgatory. There is no second chance as is being taught by some today. There's just not. He went and preached. We don't know what he said. I've got a, I've got a sanctified imagination. You can imagine Jesus walked in and said, you tried to keep me from happening, but I've, I've got you, I want you to know that uh, there's now victory over sin and death and you are defeated. I don't know what he said to them. But listen to Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So sometime, either between his resurrection or right after his resurrection, Jesus descended into this place where God has reserved for judgment these demonic beings. And you know what? It says in Revelation that abyss is going to be opened one day during the tribulation time. And some of those creatures are coming out. But he proclaimed victory to them. Go back to the context. He suffered and died. He thought he was defeated. He had victory over 
the enemy. Encouraging Christians. Y'all with me so far? Well, finally, I want you to notice the profession of Christ's followers. Now, stay with me here. In verse 20, it says they were formerly disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, we go to Genesis, we find that God gave Noah 120 years to build the ark. Or he told, he said, mankind's got 120 years before I'm sending the, the flood, the judgment. So he built this ark for 120 years. We know that he was a preacher. We know that he probably tried to get people to understand that the judgment of God is coming, that you need to be prepared, it's coming. But what did Luke tell us? Luke chapter 17 says they were marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking. It was business as usual. And Noah lived in a day like our own, we're in an age of skeptical unbelief and casual unconcern. And with each passing day, Noah looked more like a fool. An illustration there of persecution to the Christians. And we know what's going to happen. But Peter then explains how this story illustrates salvation. Verse 21 uses the phrase, there is an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. See, that verse tells you he just preached to the spirits in prison. Now he's seated at the right hand of God and he's got dominion over everything, all the principalities and powers of darkness. But this antitype here, it's the word antitupon, which means a copy or a counterpart or a figure pointing to. It's a term that describes an earthly expression of a heaven reality, heavenly reality. It's a symbol. It's an analogy. And so he says that the ark and the water is an analogy of salvation. Now stay with me. Let's look at the parts of this illustration. First, the water, the flood, is the judgment of God. It is, isn't it? It judged the whole world. The only people that were saved were those that got on the ark. Noah, Mrs. Noah, their three sons and their wives. That was all that was saved. The rest of it was the judgment of God, the water. It flooded the whole earth. There are a lot of people that don't believe it, but I believe the evidence is there for a worldwide flood. And so the second thing is the ark, the ark represents God's salvation. Peter says, in it, a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, through water, not in the water. If Noah and his family had been in the water, they would have drowned like everyone else. They're in the ark through the judgment of God. And third, the water symbolizes baptism. Now this, stay with me. Let me answer a question. What did Peter mean? Let me answer it with another question. How much water actually touched Noah? None. The water that saved them never touched them. 
Some of you are looking at me like, what? Let me say it again. The judgment of God wiping out all the evil of the earth, starting over. The old earth is gone. There's going to be a new one. They're in the ark. So this water that saved them from all of the evil and stuff and the judgment actually never touched them. They're in the ark. The water only saved them because they were already in the ark. Here's the, here's the analogy. Here's the, the antitype. The judgment of God is the water, the ark, and because of God's grace, God put them in the ark. And the ark is a, is a picture of Christ. We're in Christ. We're saved from the coming judgment of God. And he says that this is a picture of salvation. What he's not saying is that baptism saves you. Now, salvation does not occur by any means of right, including water baptism. In fact, Peter makes that clear. He says, it's not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This appeal to a good conscience means you come on divine conditions. How did God say come to him? He said you repent of your sin and you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Now folks, I want to tell you, there are those who believe in baptismal regeneration is what we call it. They say that you are baptized into Christ in the baptistry. That when you go down and you come back up by your faith, you are baptized into Christ. You're not baptized into Christ any other way than through the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to talk about the importance of baptism in just a second, but I want you to see that you can't take this passage and say the only way you can be saved is to be baptized into Christ in the water. Now, let me, let me stop and tell you the word baptized, by the way, is a Greek word, baptizo. And they've transliterated it into English, baptize. It means to immerse. When the King James Bible was being translated, it was translated by the the religion of that time, the Catholics, they came to the word baptizo, which means to immerse. They weren't immersing. They were sprinkling or pouring. So they came to King James and said, can we just put the word baptize there? So then they can do what they want to do. But I'm telling you, the word baptize means to immerse, to put under. And the reason that God has us baptized is that it is a picture of the burial and resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's not the removal of the dirt from the flesh. It doesn't save you. I, that's why we don't baptize babies. That's why we don't baptize people until they've committed their lives to Jesus Christ. Baptism is important because it's like pledging allegiance to Jesus. When you give your life to Christ, you want to pledge allegiance to him. I want to identify with him. I'm not ashamed of him. 
And so the Lord says, you profess me before men, that's baptism. It was public. It was in the open. It was to show every baptism is a sermon without words. You see the gospel, the burial and resurrection of Jesus. You see what's happened in the life of the believer. The old way of life is gone because of Jesus. He'd been raised in a newness of life because of Jesus, not because of the water. If you accepted Christ today and you weren't baptized and you walked out and were killed in an automobile wreck, would you be lost? There are people who believe that. I'm not one of them. But I will tell you this. It's not optional. It doesn't save you, but it's not optional. Because when you say, Lord, here's my life. I want to be obedient to you. The first thing he says is, identify with me. In fact, the phrase is used, the answer of a good conscience toward God. Lord, you know what? People that are never baptized can't really grow in the Lord because they're living in disobedience. You you really can't. It's it's like living perpetually, and there's never peace. If the Lord had told us to go stand on our head out on the loop, I'm glad he didn't. But he walked 30 miles to be baptized to set the example for us. And he, he went down in the River Jordan. He wasn't sprinkled. He was immersed. Because immersion shows the burial and resurrection of Christ. It shows what's happened in your life. The old way of life is gone because of Jesus. You're given a new life. You are baptized into Christ when you repent of your sin and ask God to forgive you and you place your faith in Christ. He immerses you with the righteousness of Jesus, with his holiness. He covers you so that when God sees you now, he sees you as righteous because he looks at you through the righteousness of Christ. You don't get that in the water. And yet I don't want to indicate it's not important because it's the first thing when you give your life to Jesus say you know what I, I want to pledge allegiance to him I'm going to cross the line I want everybody to know that's what baptism is now he's using this as an example he said the the ark is a picture of salvation just like Christ you are in Christ and he throws in that by the resurrection of Jesus Christ Muslim countries, Christian converts are not persecuted sometime until they're baptized. It can be life or death. It means you've decided to leave the old world behind and get into the ark of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the issue is not have you been baptized, but have you become a follower of Jesus? The waters of the great flood picture the waters of baptism and the waters of baptism point to the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. Baptism stands in the same relation to salvation that the ark and the flood stood to Noah. The water didn't save them. The ark did by the grace of God. The water doesn't save you. Jesus does. But it's portrayed in the water. And then he throws in that phrase by the resurrection through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, I want to tell you, I was there last week. The tomb's still empty. Several of us were there. Tomb's still empty. We serve a risen Savior. 
And then it says in verse 22 that he's seated at the right hand of God. All authority having been given to him. Those of you, you know, I ask people sometimes, do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? And many times their first response to me is, I was baptized. Now, I understand that being a time you can go to to remember, but I pray that something happened to you before you were baptized because baptism doesn't save you. I know there are people going to write me about, I already get get letters. They threw this passage up to me last time. But the fact is, it just doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. We're saved by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says the only way to please God is through faith. Faith in Christ. And if you don't know Jesus today, you don't have to join our church. And we're not mad at anybody else that doesn't believe like we do. We just want, I just want you to know Christ. And if you don't know Christ, you can know him today. You don't have to join Southcrest. If you've never been baptized, what are you waiting for? What excuse are you using? Listen, if you love Jesus, pledge allegiance to him. If you don't have a church, God's bringing you to this one. Well, welcome to the sinful Southcrest Baptist Church. The saved sinners of Southcrest Baptist Church. Forgiven. We're not perfect. We're just forgiven. Would you bow your heads with me? A poignant message from a problematic passage today from Pastor David Wilson. Peter tells us that Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust. He, the only perfect human, suffered in our place to pay the price for our sin and secure our salvation. And he sealed that redemptive work with his resurrection. Be sure to join us again for our next installment of Southcrest Live. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.